The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If I had to sum up the public debate about elites, it's can't live with them and can't live without them, right? But there's not really a good sense of like, what's the alternative? The last 20 years, it sort of culminated in this Brexit, Trump sort of anti-elite, anti-expertise. People in this country are sick of experts. I think it was Michael Gove who said that in the Brexit debate. This idea that, you know, experts are the problem and we need to stop listening to experts. And yet when the chips are down, we sort of look to experts to tell us, you know, what to do. And that has also been a problem in the pandemic as well. So the difficulty we have is how to talk about elites in a more nuanced way. The idea that elites are a monolith or that elites have a consensus, that elites are all anything, can often mask a lot of underlying disagreement. And so we really need to understand the politics of elites in a much deeper way. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th, 2022. Global crises of the last 20 years have led to a backlash against elites of all kinds. But those same crises often lay bare just how much power they still have, especially in foreign policy. Former Lawfare Associate Editor Bryce Clem sat down with Elizabeth Saunders, an Associate Professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, about her recent article in the Annual Review of Political Science, Elites in the Making and Breaking of Foreign Policy. They discussed questions like who exactly are foreign policy elites? why they behave the way they do, and what, if anything, is the alternative to concentrating power in the hands of an elite few. Bryce and Elizabeth also got into why, when it comes to foreign policy elites, we can't live with them and we can't live without them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th, Elites in the Making and Breaking of Foreign Policy with Elizabeth Saunders. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I think it's useful to start with definitions to ground our discussion, and I know you spend a lot of time in the review going over this very question, but who are foreign policy elites and how should we understand that term? This is a question I have grappled with for a long time, and sometimes I throw my hands up and think that you can only define elites in the classic Potter Stewart. You know them when you see them. But I think there have been some really useful efforts to define elites and foreign policy elites in particular. One of them comes from work by uh, a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and colleagues, Emily Hafner-Burton, along with Alex Hughes and David Victor. They have an article where they define 
elites as the small number of decision makers who occupy the top positions in social and political structures. So in you know, plain English, it just means the small number of people who occupy these really important roles at the top of the social and political and foreign policy structures that we know to be important for, for these decisions. Two things sort of define in their view what separates elites from non-elites. And this is not a perfect definition, but I think it captures a lot of the variation. So they argue the first is the control of resources, like who gets to deploy money and political power and other sorts of resources that you might that might vary across different domains. And the second one is maybe the more familiar, which is this idea that elites have a lot of really context-specific experience and expertise. So it's really not just that they're they're in this position, it's that they know a lot about a, a narrow subject. Um, and that allows them to use what we call heuristics or shortcuts in a in a crisis or in in the moment of decision making. They can represent the world in their minds quickly using these simplified sorts of images. They recognize this is a decision about the use of force, or they recognize this is a choice we have to make about negotiating a provision of a treaty. And they've done it before, or they've done it in a similar enough context that they can do it efficiently and quickly. And so this context-specific experience, for better or for worse, like without making any normative judgments about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, just definitional, sticking to what defines an elite, that, in their view, deployment of resources, control of resources, deployment of resources, the ability to decide who gets what in terms of power and and, and other sorts of resources, and this context-specific experience. And the other sort of place I always go for anything to do with elites and, and foreign policy is the late great Bob Jervis's work, Robert Jervis, who passed away very sadly earlier this year, or late last year, I guess. And there's so much in, in Jervis's work that you could do an entire podcast and not even scratch the surface of what's useful. But one of the takeaways that I always am reminded of when I go back, particularly to his book, Perception and Misperception in International Politics, is elites have a lot of biases that's undeniable. But it's also the case that those biases are kind of what we pay them for, right? The shortcuts, the ability to get into a room and recognize the problem and understand what, you know, use those shortcuts to make decisions quickly and and in crises and under stress. And they don't get it right all the time that you could argue they don't even get it right most of the time, depending on your view of how to judge elite decisions. But it is a fact that those biases are part of what make elites. And I mean biases here in the sense of deviation from some normal norm, not necessarily like in the pejorative, most pejorative sense of the term. So, you know, biases, heuristics, shortcuts, recognition of patterns for efficient decision making is part of what makes an elite. And I think one of the things I tried to do in this review was to say foreign policy elites and elites are not the same, which seems like a really simple thing. But we have recently elected several presidents who didn't have a lot of foreign policy experience when they took office. That includes President Obama, President Trump. President Biden is actually 
unusual in the amount of foreign policy experience and interest in the topic that he's had over his career. So, and that comes with its own problems as well. But we have seen people sort of laterally move from from business to foreign policy, Robert McNamara, for example, um, in the Kennedy administration. And military, you know, to the civilian side, couple of recent secretaries of defense. So I think we we have to be careful to separate, you know, you can be elite, which gives you power and influence, and that comes with a set of biases, overconfidence, those other kinds of generic elite characteristics. Those are not the same necessarily as being a foreign policy elite, where you might have expertise about a country or a topic or an issue. And so I think I try to be careful in the review to think about that because this lateral movement over the course of a person's career can really change the expression of preferences and how elites make decisions. I was wondering if you could give us an example of sort of what the conversation around elites in foreign policy looks like in the context of some events over the past 20 years, like the Iraq war that you mentioned in the review, the financial crisis, and even as recently as the withdrawal from Afghanistan, how does at least the public debate around these elites play out and inform the scholarship? Yeah, so this is an interesting moment to be studying elites because elites, and I should say, I wrote this article primarily, you know, during, at the height of the pandemic, the, you know, I started working on it right as we went into lockdown and and you were daily witnessing this idea that we sort of needed to turn, we were sort of turning to technocratic elites and then they, many of them were letting us down, right? And I go back to, um, you know, I study national security and not, you know, international political economy, but I couldn't help but notice that the Italians sort of booted their populace and went to turn to Mario Draghi, right, to to lead them in in this time of crisis. And so, there's this sort of sense, I, I, if I had to sum up the public debate about elites, it's can't live with them and can't live without them, right? It is natural for most people to not pay that much attention to foreign policy, right? And that we all do that in our lives with some issues. If you had me on this podcast to talk about healthcare, I'd probably unsubscribe to the podcast, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in in healthcare and healthcare policy, and I and and that is even true of of things in foreign policy that I'm not a specialist in, right? Trade policy. I call up my co-author who studies trade when I want to get a really you know good handle on an issue in trade policy. And this is normal, right? We all do this. We couldn't, we're all busy people. We can't, voters are busy people. We can't keep track of everything. So it's not, I I always feel the need to caveat when I say people don't pay attention to foreign policy. Like that's, that's normal. That's a feature, not a bug. So the answer, you know, sometimes it's the, the public needs to have more of a say, but that's, that's not really an answer. And so there's this sense of, the elites are making bad decisions and dragging us into these terrible policies, but there's not really a good sense of like, what's the alternative, right? Like if not elites, then who? So I do think that the, the last 20 years, you know, it, it, it sort of culminated in this, in the Brexit and Trump sort of anti-elite, anti-expertise. People in this country are sick of experts. That's sort of the the UK version of of this. Um, I think it was Michael Gove who said that in the Brexit debate. 
this idea that, you know, experts are the problem and we need to stop listening to experts. And yet when the chips are down, we sort of look to experts to tell us, you know, what to do. And that has also been a problem in the pandemic as well. So I think that the the difficulty we have is how to talk about elites in a more nuanced way, which is never an easy thing to do in public discourse at all on any subject. But I do think that the the idea that elites are a monolith or that elites have a consensus, that elites are all militaristic, for example, or they're all all anything can often mask a lot of underlying disagreement. Some of that stems from partisanship. Some of that stems from careerism. Lots and lots of reasons. But we won't actually get anywhere if we don't get the diagnosis right. And so we really need to understand the politics of elites in a much deeper way. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a sort of a structural question for you, which is the structure of the U.S. government's foreign policy bureaucracy places a lot of importance on these elites and who are in these positions. Why is that and how does the structure sort of affect that? Well, it, to some extent, that's always been the case. But I think that there have been some trends. And then again, this goes back, you know, as you were saying, you know, the events of the last 20, 30 years, it has been exacerbated by political polarization and other trends that have concentrated power in the hands of the U.S. president. And lawfare has been on the forefront of this, you know, for a long time on on drones, on, on the AOMF, Authorization for the Use of Military Force. I mean, all of these factors that there, there, some of them are symptoms and some of them are causes of the just trend in ever centralizing presidential power. And the centralizing presidential power in foreign policy is not new. I mean, it used to ebb and flow a little more. Richard Nixon was sort of the the big centralizer, but it it, it wasn't always quite that concentrated. But the rise of political polarization has really has had many effects on on foreign policy, but I think one of them is that, and and it isn't just polarization that's caused this, but there has really been a decline in the structural level of expertise on foreign policy in Congress. And that, I think, is a really important factor in why the executive branch, the president, the secretary of state, all these sort of secretary of defense, the the role, the structural sort of emphasis on who these people are has gotten only more important, not just in the public eye, but what goes on behind the scenes that, that people like me dig into the archives 30 years later to try to figure out what happened, right? There is just not a lot of interaction anymore or serious oversight or accountability from Congress. And that has sort of effectively delegated even more power to the president. Now, that's not all due to polarization. Some of it is the result of technology, the development of technologies that allow presidents to just evade scrutiny even further. So I'm thinking here of drones, um, the work of um, Sarah Kreps and Mike Horowitz and Matt Furman has really emphasized this. Other developments, the development of, of military medicine that makes it easier to survive on the battlefield, but also makes it more difficult to, to have a really good sense in the, if you're a member of the public of how many casualties there are. And Tanisha Fazal at the University of Minnesota has done incredible work on this and, and how that can undermine democratic accountability for the use of military force. So there's a number of sort of material things that have changed. 
But it's also that it just doesn't pay anymore to be a foreign policy expert in Congress electorally, at least in the Republican Party, it doesn't. There actually has been a rise in national security Democrats. Some of that is just that the 2018 class of, of new members of Congress came from, a lot of them had this background from the Obama years, and that's been an influx of real new talent on the national security side. But the trends overall are away from deep long-term policy expertise. There are always exceptions, but the problem with that is that a lot of the mechanisms, I mean, we're, we're taping this today on June 9th, and tonight is the January 6th, the, the primetime hearings, right? So this is a moment where, all, where a lot of people's eyeballs are going to be on Congress and a, and a congressional hearing investigation. But these kinds of focused moments are very, very, very rare. And they weren't common before. But if you go back and you look at the history of the Cold War, there were more hearings on the Korean War. The MacArthur hearings um, after the firing of Douglas MacArthur really had a massive impact on the course of the Cold War and, and many other aspects of national security policy. Hearings in Vietnam were very, very important. And it's been documented, you know, Linda Fowler has a wonderful book, uh, Watchdogs on the Hill, where she shows that there's been a real decline in the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and this sort of oversight. So tonight we're going to really be focused on it, but most of the time people just aren't. And I think that really, it has, it means that the, you rely even more on these kinds of invisible forms of accountability. And a lot of scholarship on Congress and how Congress influences foreign policy emphasizes this sort of anticipated reaction, right? The president will do what the president thinks can get through Congress. And it's been pretty well established that that kind of anticipated reaction is a critical, invisible mechanism of influence. But what happens when there's no reaction to anticipate? If it's just partisanship, knee-jerk partisanship, opposition to the president, if there just isn't a well-formed policy view to, to think about, that really undermines congressional influence. And it, again, it's just exacerbating this ever more concentrated power in the executive branch. And, you know, sort of going along those lines with the trends, looking back through the Cold War, I'm curious about the scholarship. You reference studies that, that go, I think, as late as the 1950s. Since that time period, how has the scholarship around elites and foreign policy evolved along with those things that you just mentioned? Well, it's interesting that you ask this because when I started out, it was very unfashionable to study leaders, elites, anything in that realm. So the trends in the sort of Cold War period, we're really to focus on much more structural factors. So Kenneth Waltz is the is the name at the top of a lot of undergrad and graduate lips when we talk about this. And his, his a few books, but his Man, the State, and War, a book um, that was quite influential, made the argument that we can't really, if we want to explain war, we can't talk about human nature, man, because that's a constant. And that's not going to explain the, the incidents of war. And so in, an, in another book um, published in 1979, um, Theory of International Politics, he made the argument that it was this deep structural factor 
the structure of the international system that really constrained states. And there have been other versions of this argument, but his version, his version of realism really kind of dominated the conversation in international relations for a long time. There were there was some pushback. You know, Robert Cohane and, and Joe Nye wrote a book on interdependence, but that was these were all arguments that were at the level of how is the international system structured? And states couldn't just decide to try to escape the structure. They had to, and it just induced similar behavior in states and who ran them just didn't really matter that much. Even what kind of domestic institutions they had, whether they were a democracy or an autocracy or some kind of hybrid, didn't really matter that much. And so you did have people like Jervis and others who study political psychology working on leaders and elites, but the general view was that the structure dominated, and at most you had some domestic or international level kind of interdependence or regime type democracy versus autocracy. And so there just wasn't that much research. And now there has been a swing in the other direction. And so the study of leaders is a really vibrant area right now. The first sort of move that happened was the end of the Cold War. And the end of the Cold War ushered in an era in which people studied domestic institutions, democracies, and autocracies much more closely. And that was partly driven, I think, by the idea that the democracy had won out and and what did that mean? And was there a so-called democratic advantage in international politics? Are democracies better at fighting wars, choosing the wars they get into in the first place, that kind of thing. But Elites still didn't really have much of a role because the idea is that the domestic institutions kind of average out the effects of individual people. So what matters is, is a country a democracy or not? Not do they have this kind of leader or that kind of leader? And it wasn't really until the, the I guess we call them the aughts, <laughs> the 2000s, that you saw this revival of interest in in leaders. And I try to think of it like when you read leaders do this. If you swap out a proper name, right, does that change the the outcome? And sometimes you read books that will say leaders and they don't really mean that. They just mean whoever is the head of state in the democracy. But you really had a shift in the aughts to trying to study systematically how certain types of leaders, different leaders with different types of experience, backgrounds, did they come up through a revolution? Did they come up, did they have rebel experience? That's a that's been one area of research. Do they have a military background? So we're not talking here about like an infinite variety of, you know, great man theory, everybody's different. We're talking about understanding and categorizing in a systematic way different leaders. And I think now we're beginning to sort of go into the more general elites who work with these leaders and from whom leaders are often drawn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you write a lot about, you know, in this review, you write a lot about do elites get what they want when they're finally in the position, you know, how does that, how does that play out and what sort of factors, I mean, there's so many different things that you go over, but what sort of factors do they have, especially in a democracy like the United States that sort of temper their expectations and their desires? Yeah. So for a long time, I think the idea of thinking about elites, the one sort of big exception that really took root in the Cold War in terms of studying elites was the bureaucratic politics model. This idea that you where you stand depends on where you sit. 
And those ideas are associated with Graham Allison and more uh, Halperin and their work on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I teach it every year. It's still regularly taught all across the country. It's very influential. But the interesting thing about the bureaucratic politics model is that it doesn't have a lot of politics in it. It has interactions, but it doesn't have, and I mean here, politics in a lot of different ways, politics within a hierarchy of an institution. So what are the politics inside the White House? But I also mean partisan politics, right? There's not a lot of partisan politics in there. And so one of the things I, you know, when you're asked to write a review essay, you kind of go off and do a lot of reading and you take stock and there has been so much excellent work done in this field. But the one oddity is there just is not a lot of politics, straight up domestic, getting elected, you know, there is some, there's a, there's a lot of re-election, generic re-election incentive work, like work on how the generic incentive to get re-elected matters to a generic democratic, small d democratic, so nonpartisan, just anybody who is in a democracy, right? That that can actually influence foreign policy choices. But I mean the big D or the big R, right? This is how does the difference between Republicans and Democrats affect how elites make choices or if they're in Congress decide whether to support or oppose somebody else's choice. And I think that's very important to correct. And there's been some correction recently. There's been a spate of work on the so-called Nixon to China effect, this idea that, you know, it's easier for hawks to make peace. Great work by Jessica Weeks and Michaela Matis, uh, for example. Sarah Kreps has also done some work on this. I think that's really important important work, but it's mostly thinking about public opinion and how the public reacts to this, not so much how it influences elite incentives. So one of the examples I go back to again and again and again is the Iraq war and the authorization for the use of military force, the vote in the fall of 2002. So you will often hear this idea that there was a kind of uniform thinking about the use of force and the militarist instincts kind of kicked in. But if you go back and you look, there was a lot of interesting variation on the Democratic side of the aisle in terms of what people were saying and and who supported what and why. And I think what's really interesting is there were there are there have always been hawkish Democrats and hawk and more dovish Democrats and more hawkish Republicans and more sort of restrained Republicans. That's been true since the beginning of the Cold War. And it is true that a lot of the, the, the Democrats who voted for the Iraq War come from the faction that is traditionally more willing to use military force. But many of them who did, many of the Democratic senators who voted for the war, not all, but many of them really had serious misgivings about it and did not think it was a good idea. And they voted for it in part because they had presidential ambitions and they believed that a Democrat could not get elected if they had opposed a war that at the time, the winning side was, you know, we were supposed to have a cakewalk. And so the idea that you'd have been on record against that war, that that would actually help you get elected president, as it turned out to be the case with President Obama, people didn't view it that way. It was that I better be on the the pro-war side of this argument. And that has roots in what happened when Sam Nunn opposed the Gulf War 
in the early 90s. And, you know, that was widely seen as dooming his presidential run. And so you have this strange spectacle of Dick Gephardt, who was very much considered a liberal anti-war type, wanting to run for president and voting, not just voting for the Iraq war, but going around the Senate Democratic leader, Tom Daschle, to broker a deal with the White House. He was the one in the Rose Garden with President Bush, right? Because he he thought that would actually bolster his his uh, national security credentials. This idea that Democrats need to look tough can end up trumping their actual foreign policy preferences. And you may say that's a distinction without a difference, as opposed to just, you know, Washington is full of interventionist people. But I think it's really important to understand that the apparent consensus around the war was partly driven by those politics. If you don't get that diagnosis right, the mechanisms of accountability that you would want to have will be ineffective. I want to move to, before we get into some more about elite selection and elite incentives, I want to ask sort of about elite performance when they get into these roles or even when they become the leader. Like I think President George H.W. Bush, Bush one is sort of comes to mind as an elite who became the leader. You know, how, what, what do the studies say? What does the scholarship say about how they perform generally? Yeah. So this gets into the whole, does expertise, like, is it good to have experts or in power or not? And, you know, I think the, the, the likes of a George H.W. Bush, the varied experience he had at extremely high levels. I mean, it's hard, you never say never, but it's hard to imagine replicating that. I mean, if you think about, you know, he was envoy to China, he'd been ambassador to the UN, head of the CIA, vice president, I may even be missing one, right? I mean, it's just the breadth of experience regionally, issue-wise, and then to be elected president, it, it's just hard to, you know, you just don't see career paths like that anymore. So, I mean, and, and you know, Hillary Clinton, the first time before she was secretary of state, probably would have counted as a, didn't have much foreign policy experience. But by, you know, people always ask me, like, what counts as, as foreign policy experience? I think once you've been secretary of state, that counts, right? So... <laughs> Um, so you know it can things can change over a over a four year period, right? And and the nature of her candidacy, um, for better or for worse, would have been quite diff- was quite different. So how do they perform? They don't always perform well, um, and I think that contributes to this knee jerk elites are bad, right? That you blame a lot of these failures on elites. That's some of that is selection effects. So Dan Dresner's book on how the system worked after 2008, right? Elites maybe got us into the mess, but they also, those institutions run by elites maybe helped keep things more stable than they otherwise would have been. And that's, you know, better than they otherwise would have been is a very difficult standard to inject into public debate. It's why terrorist attacks that didn't happen are hard to, you know, it's hard to get credit for for preventing bad things from happening. And you're not going to have a congressional hearing about a success. Of course, in, in right, foreign right. Policy. Yeah. So I, I do think we have to be aware of our own tendency to grade with heavy emphasis on the admittedly dreadful, terrible mistakes. I mean, I don't mean to, I, I often feel like I might be, you know, coming across as defending elites, right? It's more that I think we need to think about this as a trade-off. So if you think about 
expertise versus fresh eyes or expertise versus loyalty or whatever the alternative you think to experience and expertise is, you have to think about what the benefits of the, and the cost of, those ex, of that expertise is and what you'd lose if you didn't have it. So this, you know, going back to Jervis, right? Bias is sort of what we pay elites for. What makes an elite is a foreign policy elite is have is the ability to make these efficient decisions under pressure in crises to recognize the patterns that that idea of like being able to form a mental picture in your mind and quickly make a call. Now, quickly can be you know minutes in a nuclear strike or it can be weeks in a negotiation, but it's under pressure certainly, and that doesn't mean elites are right all the time. But it does mean that if you take that expertise away, you lose something very important. So the other thing that we don't, we only are now really learning more about is how, how to take the biases that are good and magnify them and how to think about dampening the biases that are maybe bad or pernicious. So overconfidence or other sorts of factors. And so one of the things that you can think about is how biases kind of add up in groups. So it, it could be the case that the same person will behave differently in one setting versus another setting. And the example that I really like to go back to is comparing the presidencies of George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush. So a lot of people served both of, in both of those administrations in very high level positions. A classic and a really good example is Dick Cheney, who was the Secretary of Defense in the first Gulf War and the Vice President in 2003 war. If you go back and you look at, at Cheney dealing with George H. W. Bush as his boss, you see him saying things to the war planners like, this plan is not good enough to pass muster with, with the president who has all this experience. You need to plug these holes. He's operating in the shadow of the expertise that he knows George H.W. Bush has. And that, that expertise really affects how, you know, it's that anticipated reaction. You know, I can't, this is a boss who will, who will spot the holes and drill into the problems with a laser with a laser focused ability to spot what's wrong here that induces different behavior and care in the team that you know works with under someone with that kind of experience just in a principal agent kind of way in the 2003 case we know that the fact that George W. Bush, by his own admission, I mean, he freely admitted this on the campaign trail, I'll have a great team around me, don't worry. But he freely admitted he didn't have a lot of experience in foreign policy. That almost delegated too much power to, to the people around him who did have a lot of expertise, but there was nothing to inhibit their biases. There was nothing to kind of act as a check. And so I think experience you know, any one person can have biases that are pernicious and also biases that are good. And the trick is to get enough people with different experience in a in a structure that induces some accountability, even if that accountability is invisible, which it oftentimes is. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And some, some of those mechanisms are the incentives that inform the elites. There's a range that you that you cover and have already spoken about, partisan, career-wise, you know, what is the boss going to think about this? I'm curious if there are any sort of unexpected incentives that a general, you know, generally interested person in foreign policy might not might not realize. Yeah, I think I go back here to partisanship. You know, the this there is this idea of the blob that, you know, there's that DC is permeated with certain kinds of thinking and it's careerist thinking that is and I, I think careerism is a really important factor that that needs some systematic attention from scholars as a motive. But I think that, you know, to think about it as I need to conform to this kind of thinking, which permeates both sides of the aisle, may be glossing over some important differences. Often what you see is the the idea that the parties have a bench of foreign policy officials or people who are candidates for the next administration or when there's sort of a break, you know, there's a natural turnover midway through a lot of administrations and people kind of move up. This this occurs in many organizations across our our country and in different sectors. So, you know, on some level, we shouldn't expect that it would be that different. But the Democratic Party has a process and the Republican Party has a process. And the Republican Party used to be very much a party of national security and would ha- had a team of people and you know, that's the reason why the George W. Bush team and 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 then the sort of, you know, there's the top names you hear that are household names, but then, you know, foreign policy is run by the, the principal deputies, right? And 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 the people who serve them and and so on down the chain. And they where they come from, they had the job right below them before. And so they move up. That's how you acquire this expertise in a lot of circumstances. But you know, it is the case that the pressures on the Democratic Party to look tough mean that sometimes you, you know, to stay on the bench, you need to not necessarily speak out against something that your boss may be doing in order to look tough, if they have deemed it to be important that they choose that way in this moment. So is that the same as a universal kind of interventionist view. I mean, I would submit it's a very different political mechanism. And I think the other thing is to think about what's happened on the Republican side, because the Trump years really changed the nature of the Republican foreign policy establishment and fractured it between the sort of never Trump traditional national security folks and those who who went in. And there were some crossover, but not much. And 
I do wonder what will happen when we have the next Republican administration. And I think that's that's a really critical question that we haven't really grappled with. And when you think about President Trump coming into office as that, you know, I think it's safe to say, call him an anti-elitist or whatever, he was still advised by people like H.R. McMaster and people that had, you know, even talked him out of withdrawing from Afghanistan immediately. Yes, although I would say that those were, over time, that set of voices diminished in, in authority. And I think the moment that really drove that home was when Jim Mattis resigned after Trump had um, effectively withdrawn from Syria by tweet. And, you know, the the interesting moment that's on the horizon right now that will be quite interesting is that whenever the next Ukraine funding bill comes out, but also the the Sweden and Finland want to join NATO. And Mitch McConnell gave a very interesting interview recently, I think to the New York Times, I'm pretty sure it was to the Times, He's been very outspoken about supporting Sweden and Finland joining NATO, and he's supported in this by the Democratic leaders in the Senate. There was a joint statement that included, you know, McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Bob Menendez from Foreign Relations and the ranking member James Risch. And then it also had quotes from Gene Shaheen and Ron Johnson. I mean, it is rare to get that constellation of people to agree on anything. And they were all saying swift, you know, rapid approval of Sweden and, and Finland for NATO. And and in an era where you really cannot get treaties passed anymore, that's going to be very interesting. And McConnell made no bones about the fact that he's he's out front on Ukraine and, and NATO expansion to try to show that the Republican internationalist wing is still very much in charge and and the isolationists haven't taken over. Now, one could make one could say, well, that's not the right distinction international versus isolationist. But that's not really what I'm getting at. It's more the idea that that the direction of the the party is in the control of of its leaders that that someone in McConnell's position can still define the direction of the party or at least have it out with in in a sort of institutional setting like this that's a view of foreign policy that is driven by elites hashing things out in institutions taking positions making arguments about you know what policy is best for national security that's an older mode of making choices that that has at least on the republican side recently not been the way things are, you know, not reasoned policy debates, let's put it that way. So I think that's really going to be very interesting as the Trump faction, whatever happens with Trump himself, the Trump faction, you know, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. I want to move to the role of media elites that you that you discussed briefly. And, you know, how do media elites play sort of a more important role in foreign policy discussions that might be different from other policy areas like the economy. Yeah, it's a brief discussion because there just isn't enough work on media elites. And I think that's an area that really is an, uh, a future research for any PhD students listening. That's a very important area of research. I mean, if you could, there's a really interesting book by Matt Baum, who's done a lot of work on media and foreign policy, and and Phil Potter on how democracies, the category of democracies is just too big and we have to kind of break them down and think about 
where there's free free media and there's enough political debate to kind of make sure people can actually get the information they need to hold leaders accountable. And democracies are absolutely not equal in this dimension. So more opposition parties, more chances to hold the government to account, more stuff gets into the media ecosystem. And then if there's a lot of free press, it actually reaches people's ears. So that's one sort of mechanism. But in an age of social media where you can target voters ever more precisely, leaders speaking directly to voters, a really good example that I, I cite in the article is the Trump administration targeting Venezuelan Americans in Florida in the 2020 election in order to boost that vote. And, and that is really micro-targeting on a foreign policy issue, which is it's pretty rare that you get that much bang for your buck, so to speak. And, you know, I don't know that we know definitively that how much that mattered, but that's that idea that you can connect, you can just bypass traditional media forums or making a speech at some place like the Council on Foreign Relations, which may seem silly, but it generates quotes that then get repeated all over the place. That used to be how you got media attention to foreign policy. Now, most of the time, people do not pay that much attention to foreign policy and campaigns. That's still true. The difference is it used to be that you had to show as a candidate that you could speak this language, that you could engage in these debates, and then people would talk about that in the media, the media elites, the political commentators. And th that system has its own problems. But I think, again, thinking about trade-offs, it's not that that's such a great system. It's that what is the alternative? If the alternative is just the, the candidate speaking directly to a very, very narrow slice of people, that doesn't leave a lot of room for thinking about what's good for the nation as a whole, right? That's, that's what's missing, this idea of common knowledge, common information, being forced to articulate why your position is good for a broad swath of people you don't always get agreement on that. You hardly, I mean, that's the whole point of having different candidates with different positions. But completely severing that link, I think we have to acknowledge that that comes at a cost and some benefits, right? But also some pretty big costs. And so, again, that's why I like to, I think, I like to think about this in terms of trade-offs, right? The January 6th hearings are not going to be a panacea, but at least some of it in prime time carried by the networks is a very important focusing coordinating mechanism. And it's hard in a democracy to get people coordinated around an issue to say, think about how long it took for, for opposition to the Iraq war to kick in as a really salient electoral issue. You know, people talk about the Vietnam War and the protests, and they were very powerful, but they peaked you know, 1968, and there's a huge amount of the war that, you know, devastating casualties, ecological destruction, human suffering that happened after that. And it, it just took a really long time for that to kick in. And, and that's partly, it's not because people weren't motivated. It's because it's just hard to sustain and coordinate political pressure around, around these issues. And so, in the absence of that, what we have are elites kind of hashing these out in different fora and cutting that out, having no debate in Congress, having 
not asking candidates to speak to different foreign policy elite audiences along the way, taking that out as a hurdle. Yeah, maybe it cuts out some elitist institutions, but it, it also comes with some costs. So in the where to next section of the paper, which covers some some further areas, you talk about the rise of new technology, and that is separate from social media that we just talked about. This is more actual like artificial intelligence use of in the military and things like that. I'm curious if you were if you were a PhD student among the things that you list, which include, as I said, rise of new technology, inequality, rising inequality, polarization, declining trust and expertise, which we've touched on a little bit. If you were a PhD student or even an undergraduate political science student who might want to write their thesis about this, what what areas would you would you look at? I think there's so much work to be done here. So the technology piece of it, some of it is identifying the technologies like drones that, you know, I mean, drones are are here, but the, the next sort of set of technologies that may affect the balance of power between, in the U.S. case, the president and, and the, the legislative branch, but just more generally, elites' ability to conduct foreign policy out of the view of whoever is a hold, holding them accountable, whether that's other elites, whether that's the media, I think that's important. But I think equally important is to think about, you know, we have a Congress where we have a very old Congress and their technological knowledge is not, (laughs) whether that, (laughs) I think we've seen some pretty (laughs) egregious examples recently of, of this, but, you know, beyond the series of two, the internet is a series of tubes. We have, we have members who don't have a ton of knowledge of, of, you know, social media tech, but also AI and, and, and other issues. And it used to be that being the Senate's, for example, nuclear person, like anything nuclear in the Senate had to go through Sam Nunn, right? If you couldn't, if you were not good with Sam Nunn, it, you know, that was very bad. This stuff is, it always was complicated, technical. I mean, the debates, you go back to the debates over the MX basing mode and all the stuff in the Cold War, right? Very complicated. But today we have declining interest and expertise. There's fewer incentives. You don't get rewarded for for developing that deep expertise. And the technology is getting ever more complicated and distant from things that even dedicated people who want to get into into it can really understand. So I think understanding how elites interact and acquire knowledge about technology is as important as identifying the actual technology because those are not the same thing. And again, you know, anticipating reactions is important, but when there's no reaction to anticipate, that that's a big breakdown in accountability. So I think thinking about the role of technological familiarity, whatever you want to call it, is very important. I think also polarization. There's been a lot of work on it. There's been some work on it. Rachel Myrick has a wonderful article on how the idea that China is going to fix our problems in terms of polarization by unifying everybody in this anti-China sort of Cold War-ish way is absolutely a myth because we're so divided that views of China depend on, you know, who the messenger is. And if you if you send these cues and messages out into an already polarized environment, it's just going to make the polarization worse instead of unifying. So I think there's a tremendous amount still to be done about that. We have all of these these political arguments that I've been talking about 
may just not matter that much anymore in a world in which you just don't need to know what the policy position is. You just need to know the identity of the partisan identity of the speaker, right? So a lot of the things we think we know or that we think we knew about the Cold War less polarized era, not completely unpolarized, but where there was a moderate middle that could be swayed, may not apply. The domestic politics of foreign policy may be quite different going forward than they have been. So I think that's a very important area. And I think inequality is another one that we, you know, there's been some interesting work on the rise of new forms of influence that that the very wealthy and powerful have. But in a world where where all these factors, technology, the ability to target people more directly through social media, wealthy people being able to sort of create their own side, you know, just bypass all these traditional government institutions. I mean, think of Elon Musk and Twitter, right? I mean, that would be a way of having his own platform and that deal may not go through, but that's, you know, that's something like that, right? One question I often get is what do you do with people who, who worked for Trump and didn't and stayed till the end and kind of were were complicit in some of the things that happened at the end on January 6th and so forth. And why are they able to kind of go back into the policy world? And I mean, I, that's an uncomfortable question. I absolutely think there's people who deserve to not go back into the policy world, but I can't get my head around this one fundamental fact, which is that somebody has to keep the lights on. Somebody has to fill the jobs in the Department of Energy that oversee America's nuclear weapons. Someone has to be on the NSC. Someone has to answer the phone when other countries call. And some of those people worked for Donald Trump. And I, I, I do think that thinking about how we have accountability and where the lines are, these are, I mean, this is extremely difficult. But that's why, you know, I go back to can't live with them, can't live without them. Mm-hmm. Something that comes to mind sort of along those examples last year, Dave Ignatius at the Washington Post reported, had some great reporting about the final days in the Pentagon and Lawfare had uh, him appear alongside Jack Goldsmith. And they talked more about the legal implications of that and, and circumventing the president and things like that. But I think it would be another area sort of ripe for study. Right for a case study. Yeah. And it being right, being directly involved in in these, you know, I'm not talking about the people who were involved in the chain of command involved at January 6th itself. I mean, I'm talking about the people who are working on China policy or, you know, North Korea policy, you know, and the, but where the line is can be quite tricky. I mean, there's people who have endorsed or been sympathetic to the to insurrection. And that is not I mean you know, we're getting sort of into the more normative here. But I, I guess as a citizen, I don't want to live in a world in which presidents don't get staffed. Basic functions aren't carried out. And I want the people who in those roles to have experience. I want that to be true no matter which party wins the election. So what does that mean for people who served in an administration that you didn't support or feel made bad policy choices? These are very uncomfortable questions, but I think we have to be realistic about what different answers actually mean. So I have one last question for you, uh, which was, was there anything that surprised you when you were reviewing, when you were writing this review? That's a great question. I think some of the work on 
representation that I dug into was pretty interesting. And I had done some work on this myself in some of my other research, but it is very interesting looking at, for example, research on gender quotas or research on how members of Congress who represent Latino constituencies vote on issues that are kind of related to Latino communities like immigration. So this is Sophia Jordan Wallace's work. That partisanship can trump those things, right? That, that what's good for the party is often the critical thing or else going against, you know, type, meaning, it, you know, this idea that you would vote for a war because it's the unexpected thing that's fundamentally driven by partisanship, right? So I think that was, that, that was, you know, I was expecting to find that, that there was more uniform findings that you'd have representation of societal or group views, but that on some of these issues, you really, you didn't. And one of the very sort of an amazing coincidence, a paper that I worked on got published on, on how women in general have across a range of foreign policy issues, just generally prefer either not using force or using less force if given a range of choices than men, which is something that we know, but we did, we sort of did a meta-analysis of all of these different surveys and survey experiments. And that the link between those preferences and women getting the vote through suffrage is quite strong and influential on whether democracies actually fight war. So it isn't just that women prefer less force, it's that when they actually get the vote, the democracies that give them the vote then fight fewer wars, not just against other democracies, but against all countries. So we, it's called the suffragist peace to work with um, Jocelyn Barnhart and Rob Traeger and Alan Defoe. In the same issue of the same journal was an article by Josh Schwartz and Chris Blair that showed that women leaders make more credible threats because when they make threats, it's so unexpected because of the stereotype of women as more peaceful that it's more credible. So what does that mean? It means women leaders have incentives to be, there's another another article that shows um, it's by Alex Stark and Madison Schramm, they're iron ladies, right? They're, they, they have incentives to be tougher rather than peacemakers. Peacemakers are iron ladies, um, great title. So you have people's preferences and then you have the incentives when they actually achieve high office and they can be completely at odds. Doesn't mean you don't get hawkish. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think, was genuinely hawkish, right? I think if she'd gotten into office, she would have had hawkish preferences. It would have been hard to prove that it wasn't she wasn't being tough because she was a woman. But I think, you know, that's a good example of someone who really had sincerely more hawkish for a Democrat and more hawkish end of the spectrum. I mean, maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, given all the times we know people have incentives to act against type. But I guess... I don't know, it really drove home for me that women as a group had such, you know, you don't find things that are that overwhelming and consistent in political science research. It's just, there are not that many that are that, are that clear. And in the same issue, you show that women leaders have incentives to go in the opposite way and they're not unrelated, but it's, it's the power of those incentives is really important. And I think we can't, ascribe all the sort of consensus we we seem to be observing to, oh, everybody's militaristic. That's what everybody wants. 
There's so much we could get into, but unfortunately we're running out of time. I feel like we could talk for two or three more hours about yeah. about all of this, but uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com, and while you're at it, buy some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.